welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by CityCo, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. We're in West Corner in the northern quarter again, where it's snowing, people. Actually snow on the ground. Nobody with a long beard sledding around the northern quarter, however. Uh, I'm Vaughan Allen from CityCo, and today I'm talking to Ruth Ibeg-Buna, the now outgoing chief exec of the Reclaim charity. Thankfully she announced it like three days ago, so that's really good timing. Um, Reclaim's been running for a, a touch over 10 years now, working with young people initially across Manchester and then across the country. It's produced a host of offshoots, promoting the views of working class young people and training them to get their voices heard. And it's quite opposite to talk now. Not only is uh, Ruth just announced that she's leaving, and we'll, we'll talk through that, but it, today is the 100th anniversary of uh, the Representation of the People Act of 1918, uh, which famously gave women over the age of 35 uh, with certain financial limits, so middle-class women, basically, yes. the vote, and all working-class men. And uh, it is very noticeable, looking at Twitter and the media this morning, that the former, quite rightly, is being recognised. The latter, however, mm. even in the official Labour Party tweets, which amused me for, a, for a, an organisation we based around the working class, and indeed, which first came into power only three or four years later as a result of those working-class votes... Um, isn't being mentioned in any way whatsoever. Now, we may say that, uh, that the working class are continually ignored in British culture and society, and that's something that we will get back to, and that's one of the reasons for the foundation of Reclaim, I think. Mm. So let's start at the end, Ruth, though, rather than the beginning, because I remember those conversations with you. Uh, why are you leaving? What are you going to do? Where are you going? <laughs> OK, um, why am I leaving, first of all? I'm leaving because I have been doing this job for 10 years and I've seen many organisations have a founder float around for a little bit too long um, and I feel like I've still got the energy and I have ideas to maybe go on and do something else. So it feels like a good time to leave. Also, I'm pretty confident that the team can take this thing forward without me now. There's enough days when I'm in the office and I'm thinking, am I actually needed? Have I, have I done something useful today? And there's been so many days where I thought, actually... It's never a good thing for a chief yeah. executive. <laughs> People are nodding at me and indulging me as a kind of elderly auntie, and I just think it might be time to move on. And it's an interesting one with... Uh any, uh, as you know, I was a journalist for a while writing about music and, and it became after a while into my early 30s quite difficult to write about music that was entertaining to 13 or 14 year olds because um, even if you loved it, which on the whole I did, you didn't feel the same spark and it must mm. be quite difficult. Um, you know, you're not my age by a long shot. Uh, but as you continue working on process and you're working through another group of 14 year olds, 15 year olds, 16 year olds, to both connect with them and to, to keep finding that spark. Well, recently the, the young people, without me prompting it, have started calling me auntie. And anyone who knows anything about kind of West African culture knows that's like a senior woman. Um, and when I first heard that, I, I laughed the first time, thinking they were doing it ironically. But now there's at least 40 children across Manchester that refer to me as auntie, as a form of respect. And when that happens, they don't want to see you on Snapchat. They don't want to talk to you about music. Um, and I realise I'm now just a senior kind of grandparent figure in their lives. And that's fine, but that's definitely time to, to exit gracefully. And then you run that risk of becoming a, quote, community leader don't you which is like speaking for people who don't necessarily want to be spoken for i have always um been very careful about the phrase community leader i think we've spoken about it before there's there's a there's a lot of danger in that and people always look for kind of people to be spokespeople for various communities um i'm spokesperson for very few people actually um the young people we work with speak for themselves and I speak for myself, you know. A lot of the time that we might have a, a joint viewpoint on something, but most of the time now it's completely divergent. Let's take it back uh, 10 years. 
even more now. Mm-hmm. Um, how did Reclaim start? Where did the, where did the idea come from? Uh, and how did how did it develop? So Reclaim started when I was back at Urbis. Remember that? Um, <laughs> um, and I, I think I pitched it in, uh, as an interview idea. I think Urbis was um, a space where there were a lot of interesting things going on, but maybe not many middle, not many working class kids in that space. And it was. Um, a slightly crazy idea to fill the space with lots of young people from Moss Side and help turn them into future leaders. You've done a sort of proto version though, in, in yeah, some teaching before that. Hadn't yeah, you? yeah, I'd, I'd done lots of. I've been working um, before that in Moss Side, so I've done a lot of leadership work in Moss Side, and then I've done a project <coughs> six months before that working with Muslim young people and getting them to feel more confident as leaders, talking about their faith and identity. So the next stage was kind of to work with young people from Moss Side, which at the time was so stigmatised as an area, and I was really shocked nationally how people saw Moss side compared to how I'd experienced it when I lived there. Um, so because it was actually what, ten ten years after the big gang stuff, so yeah. it had calmed down an awful lot into in in those terms, but it still had a very very negative image. It still does. I mean, I, I speak in London a lot now, um, and when you mention Moss side, there's almost a kind of audible, ooh, you know, it's like, oh come on, come to Moss side. It's really not like that at all. So the idea of working with young people from that area and getting them not to not to focus on gangs, not to focus on guns, but to focus on what they what the young people can do in their potential was something at the time was quite kind of novel, I think. Yeah, I mean, the first, so the first few groups, it was both boys and then girls, wasn't it? Yeah, from we were boys and girls in Moss Side, South Manchester, pretty kind of disadvantaged areas of Manchester. We weren't talking explicitly about class then. We were talking about disadvantaged young people and the fact that they were basically pretty incredible and they were resilient. And then when we got to 2014, we started talking about class because we realised actually what's underpinning all this is the issue of class. Um, talk me through the process for the first couple. Uh, I mean, as I remember, it, it was about a week that mm. you had the kids in, and we were working fairly intensely with them. You, you and Hugely your team. Hugely intensely. Yeah, I've yeah. never got over that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And at the end of it, they were producing a manifesto, but you stayed in touch with them, with a lot of them, and went went through various other things, um, sort of tra- trainee job interviews and, and those mm-hmm. sort of things. Um, so take me through that initial process of how you worked with them and what you were seeking to produce and the change you were seeking to make in their lives, and then a bit how it how it's changed mm. over the years. Well, I think um, initially there was a lot of energy and enthusiasm and passion. So there was a lot of running around my side asking people if they gave a damn about young people, and if they did, getting them CRB checked. Very quickly um, and getting involved as volunteers so there was a lot of kind of community energy um, and I think there was also the, the fact that we were going to such a kind of iconic space at Urbis that's something I haven't seen replicated very very often like taking a community group into such a kind of high profile space so as soon as young people walked in there they, they were just like wow this is a, amazing because um, they might be used to delivering work within a, a community centre for example um, so we got loads of people on board as mentors we got the young people to think of themselves as leaders rather than than kind of um, participants on an intervention programme. Um, they wrote a manifesto for change, which was all the things they wanted to change about themselves and their community. And then over the next eight months, we'd hold Zoom people to that. To every weekend, once a month, we'd have them um, running around activities around the manifesto points. So, for example, we had a manifesto point on the Salford Girls, which was... Um, oh, young girls need to be free to walk the streets without being harassed by older men. Um, Because they said that on-street harassment was a huge thing. So one weekend we had a rally of 13-year-old girls with placards in the centre of Salford talking to father-aged men about how unsuitable it was for them to be kind of catcalling and harassing young girls. And it was just really, really powerful. So it's about the young people being heard, but then actually pushing through and having some kind of change on the thing they feel passionate about. 
Uh, one of the interesting things um, was when there were not dissimilar projects underway and looking at um, mentors or, or role models, mm. they tended to be millionaires and pop stars. Mm. And, and, and part of this was very much, it was ordinary, but I mean, actually some people who had been involved in criminality, but ex-offenders. Um, but people who were taxi drivers, people who, who ran takeaways or whatever. Um, and that was a really, really powerful statement, both from what Reclaim did, but also to the kids, that there was a straight path here that wasn't necessarily going to end with jewels dripping from everywhere, uh, but could end in a decent and happy life. I think when I first started, I started talking about mentors. What I found really interesting was people presumed I meant kind of ladies who lunch, um, who could have a little fundraiser for the young people and, um, you know, could could be there to show them the, a better path. And actually, th th these people are not accessible to the young people from council estates. Um, like, having five millionaires have a, have a lunch and uh, luncheon and come and talk to some kids, actually, those young people need people who are on their estates who look like them, who sound like them, who are going to see them after the project finishes. Um, and that and the other thing we realised that if you are working with a 23-year-old who's struggling for work on an estate, um, they've got a lot to give to a young person who actually reminds them of themselves. So we've worked with a lot of young people as mentors who face exactly the same barriers as our younger young people. And the project's been just as transformative for them as it has been for the 13-year-olds. And that was almost like an accidental thing that we realised going through the years of Reclaim, that so many of our mentors have then gone on to get better jobs or they've, they've found a vocation in youth work. Um, but actually, they've been much better mentors than people who were kind of bussed in from outside the community to keep it within the community for the role models to be people who lived on the same estates and the same tower blocks that's far more powerful and over those first few years I mean you, it started in Mossside um, there were a lot of other projects within the next couple of years around Manchester Gordon obviously there was a couple of projects Salford was a couple of projects um, so working with different communities uh, but similarly all disadvantaged um, what were you learning about differences and similarities between those communities? Um, one of the things that I found really interesting at the time was when I started working in Mossside and when I started working in Gorton, that made sense to everyone. Everyone was like, black woman leading a project with black children, this works, well done, loads of funding, well done you. When we said, oh, actually, this exactly the same thing is going on in areas of North Manchester, all of a sudden it was a bit discordant in people's minds. It's like, oh, you're, go you're going in there to lead this work. Um, and some of your mentors might be black working with working class white kids and when we went to some areas of Manchester we realised that some of the problems that we'd seen in Mossside for that community were far worse elsewhere in that the, the, there wasn't a leisure centre a lot of the money that's been pumped into Mossside to help it um, move on and progress is not in Newton Heath and it's not in areas in, in Hattersley or wherever um, so we realised quite soon that there were a lot of other communities that were, were suffering and without the headlight, without the headlines, without the, without the money, without the funding, without the support. I think one of the things that brought it home to me was, I can't remember if it was one of the first Gorton groups or one of the first North Manchester groups, um, and you got them in on the Monday morning and actually had to feed them, which you not had to do with the black kids from Mossside because how deprived they were, they... They were well fed, um, and, and you know, culinary achievement was part of their culture. Um, but 
actually a very Victorian thing of, uh, yeah, you need school meals because you, you need to feed somebody before they can concentrate, before they can do anything else. And, and that, I think for all of us that were even vaguely involved with the project, that was actually quite shocking and surprising. Yeah, I, I, th I think I remember the cohort, and we also had a cohort of boys, men, men the white boys, and um, we did some work with them and we had um, fruit there. This was within Herbis. We had, we had some fruit there and we made smoothies. And just their absolute shock that kind of a banana and an orange and apple, if it was blended together, could make a smoothie. Um, and then we end up going through loads of different foodstuffs. And like, do you recognise this? And I realise it's what you do with a three... It's what you do with a, you know, a one or two-year-old. And we were playing the same game with 13-year-olds. And then we realised that actually, like, nutrition was a huge issue. So then we started making sure that all our children got breakfast before we did the activities because we could no longer presume that food had been provided for the young people so over the years since as you spread around the country i mean how how has it evolved in, in terms of what you're getting from the kids what you're wanting from the kids is that ascent, is that mentor mentee relationship staying the core of everything you do and that idea of the manifesto staying the core of what everything you do i think we've become um maybe a bit angrier a bit more radical um as, as the young people from um 10 years ago became older they, they really challenged us it was it was in 2014 we had a, a real moment where um a young woman called Sinead who was on the first girl I remember <laughs> yeah um, and she came to see me on behalf of some of the other young people and basically said to me um this language that you're using to describe us as disadvantaged and you're calling our communities disadvantaged it's making us feel really rubbish and you're telling us we can be leaders but then you're trying to evoke pity to get money to keep the project running and she was just like we're not comfortable with it we don't feel like leaders when we're announced onto stage um as you know from such a disadvantaged community and it was such a a, a difficult one for us because obviously we need to keep going and by this point we're an independent charity and if you don't tell people this, the story of overcoming adversity then you, how do you actually you know get the heartstrings and get the, the money but the young people said no and we had a huge strategic review at that point and we followed the young people and we said well if you're not disadvantaged what are you and that's when they said well we'll we'll put what we're being called working class but only if we're there to kind of kick the stigma out of being from working class communities um they were like we want to fight against some of the labels that our communities are given and that's when we really switched what we were about and became a bit more activist i think at that point and that was in 2014 but that came from the young people was that personally challenging for you i was proud of them i think i think i'd always felt a little bit uncomfortable with the interesting is you know i'm an outgoing charity ceo i'm quite uncomfortable with, with you know the whole kind of charitable model in this country i think you know we we do we sit there um, begging for money for good causes and i think that charity is essentially a hugely political issue i'm not allowed to be political i'm not allowed to be part of political i'm i'm not allowed to say anything that's too controversial yet i think the idea that some of the young people I'm working with are not eating <laughs> um, and don't have money and food is a political issue. So I was really proud of them, really. So how did you square that circle in terms of what... Um, to, to maybe overstating it, but, you know, funders are expecting you to jump through those hoops of using that language and almost presenting those those nicely scrubbed children on stage in a, in a terrible Victorian orphanage-type way um, to sing their song or do whatever it is to make everybody feel good about themselves. Um, how did you square that circle with you still need to do some of that stuff um, to get that funding with actually to be authentic with the kids? Um, you can't use that language anymore. To be honest, it was a real kind of um, heart and mouth six months. We lost trustees at that point. Um, we lost 
two or three key funders who... Was that just them being uncomfortable with the change? Really uncomfortable. The idea of talking about class in this country. And, you know, I hadn't previously been someone who banged on about class constantly, you know, but this was something that came from the young people. Um, and so to suddenly be cast as something that, at the time, no other charities were talking about class, that we, we were really one of the first charities to talk about class, and at the time we were out there alone. And it felt like that. So funders dropped away. It was seen that all of a sudden we'd taken a very political stance. Um, and some of our funders, that I think, some of our funders and some of our trustees even, who felt a little bit more comfortable around the old model, felt that we were becoming quite abrasive and that we would actually um, run the risk of rubbing people up the wrong way, which we did, definitely. But then six months later, what happened is we, you know, new funders emerged who really liked what we were saying. And all of a sudden, then a couple of London charities started talking about class, you know, and that's all you need, really. Um, and then all of a sudden, people are talking about class and disadvantaging young people, and we're like, OK, cool, you know became the topical issue. I, mean, I, guess, I, I, I think there were probably some conversations around class uh, when it started mm. and, and initially, and that was, that was probably even before... When did Chavs come out? 2010, 2011, yeah, yeah. something like that, mm. which was probably the first sort of major new mm. publication in this country. It's been an underlying thing in the, in the States for, for a mm. number of years, and there have been those tensions between identity politics and race politics and class yeah. politics in, in the States, which we're starting to see play through here, I guess. Um, I think it's. I think it's. You know, it's, it's funny that it's. It's going to take a couple of London charities actually starting to say the same thing bef before it, it it comes through. What's interesting though is that that change has happened while we've had either a quote Tory-led or a, or a Tory government. That actually those debates haven't been harmed by some of the stuff around the EU referendum and all that that other stuff where the, the white working class particularly being ignored. It has become quite a major issue. No solutions to it, and, uh, but it has become a major issue. Has that actually helped? Uh, that sort of national debate has also taken place. I am in a really interesting position. Anyone who knows me a little bit and knows my politics will be surprised by this next statement. I have had so many conversations with conservatives who are far more comfortable in me mentioning working class than... Um, than Labour politicians. And that's something I found really, really frustrating for a while, actually. Um, you know, for, for, for various reasons, I would find... For example, our young people met with Ruth Davidson um, and they announced it was, like, the greatest two hours they'd ever spent with a politician. Like, literally, she blew them away. But she went head-to-head -head with them, arguing about the issue of class and consciousness and politics in a way that I've never seen any politician kind of go for that. Treating them with respect. That yeah, their, their views were worth... Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and she, she was saying, you know, I, I, I can talk to you about working class, um, uh, coming from a working class background, but I'm going to tell you about a different outcome for it. And I thought, we're in a really dangerous space here in some ways, because if people don't start engaging with the young people and talking to them honestly about their, their class and their background and the things that they believe in, then, you know, um, those, those who can and will are far more likely to, to win their affections. Yeah, which we're sort of seeing. Um, as that process has gone on then, um, how, how have you been funded? Have you got a couple of major funders and then sort of a lot of smaller ones? We've got... The most tedious element of my life is writing funding bids, and I think we've got 14 or 15 funders. And I think the, the one thing that I will not miss leaving the charity sector is the absolute banality and tedium of writing funding bids. It's just... I, th I think there needs to be a better way of doing something, that if you find something that works, you know, let's test it, evaluate it. Do, does it have the impact? And if so, let's just fund it for 10 years. You know, I think the idea that every single year I'm writing 14 pages of 
nonsense. You know, when people can see the outcomes quite clearly, um, it's ridiculous and it wastes people's energy and time and, and talent in some ways. I just think I'm sat in a library writing a funding bid when I could be out doing something useful somewhere. Sorry. Well, rant. many things you need to change. <laughs> but presumably you haven't got, particularly in the current climate, a great deal of funding from the public sector. Not a penny. So, for example, um, we deliver in Manchester, we're at Manchester Young People. We've got one project in South Wales, but everything else is great in Manchester. And currently, we haven't had a penny from Manchester for six years, I think. You know, which is a very interesting one. Nearly all our money comes from London. And there's something in that. I mean, I don't think I've seen Andy Burnham recently and not kind of hissed that at him. Um, yeah, six years, not a penny from the city. And we've worked with hundreds and hundreds of young people. I understand that, that, that times are very difficult for local authorities, but is that a model we want to replicate moving forward? And should London be completely funding the work? And has there been support from the local business community? Not necessarily, yes. not necessarily financially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had great, um, so a couple of local businesses have really stepped up. They've made a charity of choice and they've done great work with us. So KPMG have done work with our young people. Um, we've um, recently been doing work with um, Cisco, who've been supporting us for years. So there have been some local businesses that have stepped up. But I find it really interesting at the end of the day when the outcomes that our young people are achieving are so aligned with um, priorities for the city. So, you know, we, we, we all talk about how radical Manchester is as a city and we're producing all these kind of pioneering new radical young voices. For me, it feels like we should really get behind that. Yeah, it's one of the things we've been talking about a bit on the podcast um, is really this sort of move from uh, CSR days and the ideas of companies doing two or, two or three days a year as, as their CSR days to a much more engaged um, idea of either either of social value, um, so that making people uh, making sure that everybody is, is meeting up to their ethical standards all down the supply chain. Um, that they're looking to employ local people rather than bring people in. They're looking to engage with apprenticeships and so on. Um, but also where you are doing some form of CSR, that it is actually directly relevant to your business, to the to your customers, um, and really making a difference to the city at large. And we're seeing much more um, buy-in from companies for that. And it's becoming almost a uh, something that it, it seems seen as bizarre that companies aren't doing that now. I've seen a, a huge change. When, when McLean first started 10 years ago, if a business wanted to engage with us, it was like, can we paint a wall? Can we, you know, if, if you've got a youth centre, we can renovate and put some graffiti on a wall for the urban children. That's gone. Um, and so often now we have, you know, we are accountants, would you like us to help do your accounts? Or And it does feel like, which is an interesting one for me, that the business community gets what we need far more than in some ways um, other, other areas of funding for us. Um, so we found it much easier to engage with um, business directly. They'll either say yes or no. So what we find is it's just not, they don't waste our time. I've been to so many businesses who've said, no, you're not for us. It doesn't align with our values. We shake hands. It's been a nice cup of coffee. And we go, if they do like you, it's a question of great, get in, look at our values, how can we help your young people? And then we've had a deep relationship that's lasted years and it's been, I, I don't even know how much money it's worth. So for me, if I could, if I could fund reclaim in other ways, it'd be using a, a, a lot more kind of um, businesses that are aligned with our values. 
Yeah, we're, we're finding, we're just dipping our toes into it at the moment, uh, that actually there are so many good projects and there are, on the other side, so many companies that want to help projects, but it isn't always quite clear how they how they do or how they can. And, um, you know, we, we have, in with Rough Sleepers, we now have street support, which is a wonderful sort of interface between charities that are looking for stuff, companies that want to give stuff, and, and how do they meet? And we're, we're trying to work through how that can work in other areas because we've got so many good companies that have got so many employees doing so many different things uh, and so many potential projects for them to work on and it's bringing them together which is a real issue I've got a really lovely example of, a, of I think just a perfect project which is we had um, a young woman that was on our, one of our projects um, when we were back at Urbis um, who um, got was, basically was a victim of the whole kind of Rochdale sexual grooming just horrors um, and exited all that, came back to us and said, you know, I'm safe now, I'm, I want to be a leader, I want to change this issue. And um, she went and got other young survivors um, and she said, we want to train um, police social workers, etc., etc." We had KPMG supporting us at the time and KPMG were like, oh, we love this issue, but like, what can we do? We're terrified of it. And what they did is they put resource into doing an audit of CSE and, and child sexual trafficking in Manchester. So they put professional audit together, looking at the issue, looking at the areas of pressure, et cetera, et cetera. Just a brilliant piece of work, but then gave it to the girls. And so the girls, rather than being like four young women who were victims of um, sexual abuse, they were like, we've got this report, this impact report from KPMG. And on top of that, we're going to build our work which opens doors in a way that they would never have been able to do it otherwise and I just thought that was a really brilliant way of engaging um, and KPMG were like this is your thing we're not trying to intrude on that but let us support you it was a really uh, we've we mentioned it before on the podcast but there's a really interesting one with you and I who are developing Mayfield um, and when they had their launch of Mayfield um, their London team all cycled up from, from London um, and uh, were sponsored to do so and they raised money for MASH which is Manchester Sexual Health because Mayfield is in the middle of an area which is famous for sex work and has a lot of sex workers around it um, and they continue to work with MASH as, as an organisation and, and as a development site so they're very clearly stating no we're not coming in here to gentrify in quotes to get rid of everything before yeah okay we don't really want you entertaining your punters on our on a however we have to have a relationship we acknowledge all the issues we acknowledge what's going on and you as people are valued and we are trying to help it by supporting the people that support you rather than trying to come in and be very paternalistic about it which which i don't think even a couple of years ago you'd have had companies doing that they'd have just gone goodness me just get rid of this whole thing and and we'll take the pr here on it which is um is it possible to characterize i mean and maybe to talk through differences now from 10 years ago i mean what what are the issues that young people in manchester are facing i think for me the key change and it was a young person that articulated this to me recently um a young person who's now about 22 and has a younger sibling and he said everything's hitting them younger he said you know i was fine at 12 or 13 on the program he said my brother needed it at 10 um i think that the and i think there's a huge difference now between you know the, the children in in nice parts of Didsbury and the children who are in you know I don't know areas of of Clayton that are really struggling um but they're not necessarily mingling and they're not necessarily seeing each other and so therefore we have to be really careful that that two Manchesters that the, the idea of two Manchesters doesn't become even more entrenched I mean I believe there's probably three or four Manchesters but the young people now are not they're not meeting each other they're not moving around the city um, and I think that can be quite dangerous so that's one thing that I think is absolutely key. Um, 
what else is happening with Manchester. I think young people are very distressed about the issue of homelessness. Very distressed. And I, I did a, a bit of an audit with our young people recently about how they felt about Manchester. And that was the overriding um, concern for them. Um, and not just, not just compassion for the people on the streets, but also they were all um, troubled by how it made them feel. And they said that they, they are avoiding some areas because they feel too guilty. And I thought that was a really interesting thing for 12 and 13 years, that they actually feel too guilty walking around. Um, so I just thought that was a, probably a very new thing that's come. Um, I mean, going on to the first thing, uh, part of the conversation that we had back 10 years ago around um, the use of Urbis was really providing a base in the city centre for kids who, even though they lived in Moss Side, which is w easily walkable, um, didn't come into the city, didn't feel they had a home or, or, or a place in the city centre. Is that still a problem? Is it getting worse? Um, I mean, you're talking about kids not moving around within Manchester so much. Why, why is that not happening? Why are they not feeling at home in the city centre? What can be done about it? I, I think in order for them... It was really interesting recently, a group of our young people um, said the, the, the place they felt most happy in the city centre, and I was expecting Primark or, you know, the places where... And they said the central library. And I was stunned by it. It's like 12 and 13 years from Gorton and Moss Side. I was like the Central Library. And they said, now they've made that place where we feel we can go as well. And they said, there's places where we wouldn't go because it's like for, you know, crusty older people or whatever. But they said, they've also made it accessible for us where we can just go and there's beanbags and we can just sit and chill with our friends. And I didn't even know that at all. But they felt the Central Library had really done that. But they said, but there's nowhere else. And, and, and for me, for, so therefore, if that's the only place in the city centre young people feel they can go apart from shops, then of course they're not going to congregate in the centre. But it's so important that we create spaces for young people and what we're doing is creating them in their communities so we're putting youth zones in a particular area which is fine and, and a great resource but it keeps young people in that area um, and therefore why would they leave and come to the centre and I think we need them we need the lifeblood of young people to be in and around central Manchester Yeah I think it's one of the things that's, that's clearly happened in the city centre with um, the way uh, you know the massive growth in, in residents. Most most of those residents have come from outside. Yeah. We we know that most of those residents are. Uh, it's changing, um, but they are young professionals or, or middle aged professionals at the most, um, and tend to move out when they have when they have families. And, and one of the issues which developers are starting to phase up to, and I think is starting to, to run through, particularly as the city centre expands slightly, is how do we get family housing, which is going to make make a difference. If you are coming in as a group of kids from anywhere that is bordering the city centre and there aren't already kids around mm -hmm. there's no reason a to build the facilities but there's there's just no reason to feel at home here at all is there it's just not designed for you except for to take your money mm. um talk me through some of the offshoot projects that have, that have grown up over the years everything beginning with r uh, I, had a I had a time where i thought i was a marketing genius everything began with re um and everyone used to smile at me indulgently and i now realize that was rubbish <laughs> Um, some of the offshoot programs, well, there's the RAIN program, which I mentioned, which is a young women, that's probably my proudest thing. So young women who are um, survivors of CSE who are now going out and um, they've waived the right to an anonymity. And they're now training police, social workers, teachers are going into schools, just talking about how people could have better spotted the signs of CSE. And they are amazing. So that's, that's one that I'm very proud of. We've got another pro program called Educating All, which is a young man who was on the first program from Moss Side, who's now a 23-year-old researcher. And he's doing a piece of work that's about ensuring that young people from BME backgrounds and working class backgrounds feel more um, at home at university and his 
I mean, his piece of work is absolutely amazing. He's working at the University of Manchester now, and, and this is something that's rolling out. Um, because as a very bright young guy from Mossside, he got to university and then felt culturally completely alienated from everything there. So he's doing work training academics and, and training admissions officers that is not just about getting working-class kids in, because the dropout rate, especially in elite universities for working-class young people, is so high, because they arrive and just think this is not for me, these people are not for me. So that's another uh, piece of work we're really proud of. And then there's a third piece of work called Team Future, which came out of Brexit, like directly out of Brexit. And that was <laughs> that was our young people walking in on the morning of, of Brexit. And I think a couple of members of staff were crying. Well, they were crying. And then the young people asked, why? Why, are you, why were you so upset? Um, and they had a conversation. The young people were talking about the standard of political debate and everything they'd seen and how disappointed they were. Um, not necessarily with the result, but just, like, it, can politics not be done a bit better? Um, and so they've started something that's actually calling politicians and asking for them to be... Um, bold, ethical and hopeful and and actually speaking to politicians about what that means to in, engage working class young people and why their rhetoric and the way that they carry themselves is absolutely turning off working class kids. Um, and I think that a lot of politicians should probably listen, but that I'm not sure they are. What's the reaction they're getting for that? Depends on the politician. <laughs> Some are quite savvy and are spending a lot of time with them. Um, <laughs> Andy Burnham has been, um, but others, I, I think, just go for that tokenistic shot, you know, hold up this sign that says vote whatever political party and we'll have a, a photo with you. And, and when I see that, I'm just like, you're not actually listening to what they're saying. They're rejecting, they're rejecting you. And at the moment, these young people are a little bit too young to vote and they're asking for politicians to do it differently. But politicians see a photo opportunity a lot of the time and the young people can see straight through that as well. Yeah, being experts at Instagramming and how to use social media, to, um, setting those things up with them is. Uh, what do you think, generally? Then, I mean, we we sort of started with started with the issue of class. Um, there has been so much navel gazing, hand wringing, whatever, as post the Brexit vote about listening to working class people, and working class people have been ignored, and all this sort of. It, however, doesn't seem to have moved on in any way. We seem to be, particularly in a culture where um, everything, it's, it's horrible as an ex-journalist to say, everything has to be reduced to, to sound bites, but we get to such extreme positions so quickly about anything that you simply are not allowed to have a debate, a, a serious debate about anything anymore. Um, for young people who are going to mostly suffer from that, I guess you either have the path of accepting that and going down the angry route and just retweeting everything that you see that fits your own worldview, or actually going, well, that, that really doesn't sound very realistic. Um, how can they find a way through all that stuff and start to actually find out some um, the real arguments underneath things? Well, I mean, one of the one of the reasons I'm so passionate about what I do is because I started off my teaching career for the first year. Um, in Cheatham School of Music. Um, you know, lovely, very exclusive boarding school, lovely kids. And they had critical thinking lessons where they would just have a range of newspapers and look at what different people were saying. Maybe, you know, watch a bit of Al Jazeera, watch a bit of Russia Today, have a sense of... And then talk about it. And, and that was the lesson. <laughs> they were done. There was no exam at the end of it. That, that was it. And then going to the state sector which I did and I worked there really proudly for years, 
where there was no time for that, apart from for your most gifted students. And I think, and, and I think we've got the consequences of that now. You know, we, we're not encouraging our young people to think and to question. You know, the thing that I say to our young people more than anything else is ask why. Just ask why. And if you don't get an answer that satisfies you, find out why for yourself. And I don't think we're teaching that in this country. So people are just consuming and absorbing, or they're too busy to even consume and absorb. Um, and, you know, we're dealing with some of the consequences of that because I, I don't think even, even through their their studies, even through their degrees, how much are we asking them to be cynical and ask why? Um, and that's what I want our young people, especially working-class young people, to be doing. You know, people... To, the phrase I hear more than any others now is um, working-class white men. It's like, what, the country's just noticed there's a problem here? Like, like that journalist ring me constantly, and it's, it's this ebb and flow at the moment about working-class white men. And I'm just... I don't even answer any questions anymore, because I'm just like, in six months, you'll have moved on, and it'll be like Muslim women or... <laughs> or something you know working class white men have been struggling for quite a while um but it wasn't um there were no documentaries about it so i think i'm i'm healthfully cynical about everything now yeah there's some interesting work that came out unfortunately of people who are now probably too associated with the alt-right in the states but were writing even 20 years ago around um there's a particularly unpleasant guy called jim goad who wrote a, a book called the redneck manifesto about 20 25 years ago and and it really was and it's terribly Marxist when you read it. it. It it really goes into that that idea of the white working class and the white very poor in places like Appalachia, who are just uh, the, the phrase "dirt poor" was invented for them. Um, but actually, then about the process, particularly after um, the Civil War, of how there were very deliberate. Um, policies undertaken by the establishment and the ruling class to keep that white working class and the black newly freed but soon to be sort of enslaved again class um, apart and how to sort of make sure that they hated each other um, because uh, that it would be too scary if they identified with each other on, on, in the realms of in the realms of class and, and I think that's something that possibly because we obviously we, we didn't go through those sort of eruptions in the last 150 years um, but actually, some of those debates have been talked about in the States. And I think this is one of the interesting... Sorry, not to go off too, too, too much of a Bible. This is one of the fascinating things about what's happening with the NFL. And American football is a mm. sport I love um, and follow. Um, when people criticise the NFL league owners' reactions to people taking a knee, mm. they seem to forget that that has never happened in soccer. Mm. That has never happened... certainly never happened in cricket. Um, you know... Uh, and actually, the fact that some of those debates have happened in America and those conversations are underway about how all these bits fit together, mm. it's not being dealt with properly. But actually, it's probably 20, 30 years ahead of where we are. Uh, do you know, I find that that's something I find so interesting. I, we have an event called Walk for Change that, that reclaim young people organise themselves. And it's basically, I mean, it's a cynical nightmare in some ways. You know, they, they start off at Piccadilly and they, they walk through the centre. And We're indulgent towards it. <laughs> you we are, know you are. Thank you. <laughs> but they, they walk towards the centre. There's a few hundred of them, like, chanting for change, encouraging adults to join them. And, I, and I, we made a film about it last year. And the thing that's so noticeable, when you watch it is there are black kids white kids asian kids all marching together that they are working class completely united and i was and the last time i was just watching them going you don't see this you do not see different races different religions brought together under the banner of class and once 
once they've actually got that that identity, a lot of other things are falling away because they're realising that their kind of shared issue is is completely and totally shared. And that's what I'm talking about with the critical thinking. We get them to look at, okay, you guys are poor black kids and you live here well look look in the north of the city you know what are the issues that those young people are going through that are exactly the same and how can you unite but we're also adding to that and we're doing a lot of work taking those young people and getting them to swap lives for a couple of days not swap lives but experience kind of top boarding schools so we've had our young people going and spending time at dances um school in wiltshire which is another world but it wasn't a kind of come and see how poor our kids are it was like experience in life and the, the dances kids came back to Moss Side and but then they had a, a discussion and they had critical thinking and it was like what about your life am I envious of but actually what about your life do I reject and it was so so powerful and the thing that came back from the young people at dances is that the Moss Side kids knew far much more about the world they had a global view they had a sense of what was going on beyond their boundaries um, and I just thought the whole thing was so interesting I think we do need to do far more especially with young people of unifying young people from um, completely different backgrounds I think that's just so important stop having projects for Muslim boys and you know Hindu girls and just start bringing them together and not just to Play games. Get them together to talk. Play lacrosse. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, th- I think that's a really interesting one, and I think particularly, uh, you know, as a dad of, well, getting slightly older, but still really young children, mm-hmm. um, I think and I hope that they are aware of how relatively privileged they are. And actually, you know, we've certainly had debates, thanks to me listening to rap music rather a lot, about white privilege and what that actually means and, and, and so on. But I think one of the interesting things is at that age, seven, eight, nine, um, as they start to become aware of that, they are not at yet at the point where they don't want to meet somebody from an entirely... They're, they're fascinated, just the same as they are with somebody who, who might be missing a limb or, or have learning disabilities or something. They're actually fascinated with that and want to engage with it. And I think there's a huge opportunity for... Because otherwise we get to a point where people, are, even in their early teens now, where they're speaking completely different languages from people who are a couple of miles away just because of a different social background. And we seem to be going back to almost a pre-Victorian era with oh, that. I agree. That and I think, and then we're, we're further kind of inhibited by the fact we're British. So, surfacing some of these difficult topics and having those conversations about why are some people poor, why are some people not, why are some areas stigmatised, um, we don't do that very well. You know, why, why are there racial and religious tensions in Bradford? You know, I'm from Bradford, I said that recently, and there was just, uh, like, you could just see everyone, like, shut up, <laughs> don't do this. Um, and the absolute panic in people's eyes, but, my God, if we can't talk about these things, and sometimes I think I get... On some issues, I get a bit of a pass as a black person because, like, I'm always calling out a lot of my white friends in terms of the fact that I'm, I'm always saying to them, stop sanitising everything. When, you know, this whole kumbaya, we're all the same. We're not. <laughs> and, and that's fine. You know, if we're going to really celebrate diversity, it's about talking about difference. It's not about pretending that you don't see it. When people say to me they don't see class, they don't see colour, I'm like, you're not telling me the truth. You're terrified. You know, let's start talking about these things. What does it actually mean, um, and what actually unifies us as well? Yeah, I think that's when you when you look at some of the um, the historical reasons for some of those setups, mm-hmm. that there are ways of doing that without that immediately lurching into a and the great great grandchildren of that therefore have to take responsibility and feel that they are being beaten over the head by it. Um, I had a dinner a couple of couple of years back with somebody who's from a quite a well-known family who had a, was 
um, you know, I'm quite upper middle class, but um, who who was so over the top and actually had a conversation. And I suddenly I suddenly realised that where their families' estates were were probably where my family, where my great 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 grandfather, certainly on one side, was probably choking to death on the coal dust in their in their family's minds at that point. You know. Um, and that, to me, as a historian, if I'm anything, is actually just quite interesting these days. It's not something to worth to have a chip on the shoulder. But if you don't start pulling apart some of those things and, and start actually explaining them, um, then and you are always cringing about it, and you're always fearful of the reaction of that, uh, of what that means for you currently, you're never going to find any solutions, and it's never going to never going to get any better at all. Yeah, I know you said we were keeping it upbeat and positive. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Um, okay, let's keep it upbeat and positive. Um, oh. We are running on as well. Um, so what happens next for Reclaim and what happens next for you? Um, next for Reclaim, it changes. Um, I'm hoping someone amazing is going to come in who's nothing like me. So I'm, I'm trying to do the good founder thing, which is having nothing to do with the recruitment whatsoever. Um, I hope it's going to be someone different to me. Um, and I hope they'll take it. They'll keep the values completely, but they'll, they'll push it on. I'm not the person who... Do you think it'd be one of the graduates from the first generation sort of Not thing? this time. Next time, yeah. I mean, I've, I'm t I'm totally got my eye on certain graduates of Reclaim thinking, but there's still, the oldest ones are still only 23, so they're, they're a little bit young at the moment, but we will be recruiting some young people who've been through the programme. In fact, I've just been for lunch with one of them now. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident that in the future Reclaim will be run by a young person who was studying Urbis in 2007, looking a bit terrified. In a slightly ill-fitting suit at the end of it as well. <laughs> they, were <laughs> they were free. They were. They um, were. I had to lecture on why not to put your heavy phones in the suit. I do actually remember that. I was like, I couldn't quite say because they're really cheap suits and they'll lose their shape. <laughs> However, please don't put your phone in your pocket because it's not really going to be working. And and for you? For me, um, I'm not sure yet. I don't want a boss. That that's one thing I've realised. I don't want a boss. I was her last boss, and it's put her off bosses for the rest Completely of her life. Completely, still traumatised. Um, no, I don't, I don't want a boss, um, and I don't really want to be a boss either. So I think whatever I do next, it'll be very lean, um, maybe a bit of consultancy, pay the mortgage. Um, but I think I'm going to do things that really interest me now, really, really interest me, and also have a life. Oh, and I'm adopting children. So there you go. So that, yeah, we'll have loads of time. Oh, and on that bombshell. <laughs> so you won't actually have that much time. I won't have much anyway. time at all. I'm, I've got su such a false impression of what parenthood really is. I'm like, yeah, yeah, and on Fridays I'll have my children. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Thank you. Thank you to Ruth for joining us and to the lovely West Corner in the Northern Quarter for hosting us once again. If you've got any comments or ideas for things to cover in the future, you can talk to us on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR or through email on podcast at cityco.com. We're available on all good podcast systems and probably a few terrible ones as well or you can find us all at cityco.com slash podcasts please leave a review if you like what you hear 